Hello, and welcome to the Plus One podcast, where we discuss diversity and inclusion in our workplaces at the University of Melbourne. I'm your host, Medo Punada, Senior Lecturer in Management and Marketing at the Faculty of Business and Economics, University of Melbourne. In this episode, we host Victor Soho, Senior Lecturer in Leadership in the Department of Management and Marketing, Faculty of Business and Economics. I talked to Victor about workplace abuse, the different forms that it takes, the affected communities by abuse, and how to intervene to mitigate abuse at workplace. This episode was recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung, and Bunurong peoples. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Hello, Victor. How are you? Good. How are you, Mina? I'm a bit cold, actually, on my way to, to the studio. I was like, this is so cold for a sunny day in Melbourne. I think it's colder when it's sunny, right? Because I've heard that. Apparently, the clouds keep the warmth. Yeah. Thing. It's so opposite to Europe, eh? Yeah. Very much so. <laughs> So you mentioned they had a heat wave there? Yeah. Mm. So um, I think it's pretty bad right now. I was there a couple of weeks ago, and it was still very hot, you know, 35 degrees in Spain, um, which is a bit brutal with the humidity too. But right now it's like 40. Mm. So oh my not God. great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so did you enjoy your travel to Europe? I did. I did. I mean, I had a great, it's interesting because I did have a great time in, in Ireland. Um, the best part of the trip was a walking tour that we did of the of Dublin nice. with a guy who'd done history and theater at Trinity College, and he really took us in like like three three hours in on this tour. Wow! Explained the city, the history. He was very passionate about it. So you know, you really feel it when people are like awesome. that passionate about the things they do. Mm. So that was. The highlight. When you say Trinity me. College, is it Trinity College here? Trinity College, uh, Dublin. Dublin. Like, in, yes, exactly. So oh, that's nice. the, probably the most prestigious university in oh. Ireland, I would say. Oh. I think so. Oh, yeah. great. Um, and that's where they had the conference, the European Academy of Management conference was there. It was quite pretty too. Did you enjoy the conference? It was good. Um, some of the sessions, I mean, you know, there is a lot of variance in, the, in what you get from conferences right yeah so some of them were pretty solid very interesting and it's also good to meet the people who are doing the same stuff as you are somewhere else you know and see how they look at the world in a different way um even though they're very much interested in what you do absolutely so that was pretty awesome yeah various perspectives to to a topic which yeah. which is which how science works right mm-hmm. so uh, different people add different perspectives to to a topic and it grows over time um Speaking of which, can you tell me a bit more about what your area of research and engagement is and how relevant to it is to diversity and inclusion so that we take the talk from there? Awesome, sure. Um, I would say around half of my research is about workplace abuse um, and about how organizational factors makes it more common for abuse to happen at wow. work. I'm also interested in how abuse happens in sport context. So those are the two areas where I'm doing work. Mm. So looking at social and structural dimensions of organizations and how they incentivize certain behaviors among people. Um, so that would be roughly half of my research at the moment. 
And then most of the other research is about policy interventions um, around social equity at work and whether they are effective or not. So I'm trying to figure out the conditions under which certain interventions actually achieve their objectives, uh, what could make them more effective, what hinders the implementation, and then also doing some level of critical analysis of the logic behind some of these interventions, which might have some explicit um, motive or logic, mm -hmm. but then when you sort of dig a little bit deeper, you realize that there is some weird, um, counterproductive, um, yeah, sometimes even unethical logics underneath them. So, you know, sort of not, not only evaluating whether they are effective or not, but whether the reasons behind them mm. are actually good for humanity or the people who are the recipients of the interventions. So I'm very interested in that. Um, what else do I do? Well, I'm, I mean, I was just then at King's College London working with one of my teams, and they were also replicating a study that we're doing in Australia, looking at how different dimensions of gender inequality at the population level have an impact on the well-being of men, women, and their children. So that's more, um, yeah, you could call that you know, public health, if you like, sort of sociological approaches to gender inequality. Um, figuring out how that gets under the skin, literally mm -hmm. how they, that end up impacting your health. So lots of measurement, you know, connecting uh, population level data with individual level indicators to figure all of that out. Oh, that's fascinating uh, what you're doing. And I remember I was sitting at uh, your presentation at the um, Women in Leadership event, if I recall the name correctly, which was primarily aimed at our alumni at the, at the faculty. And you were talking about the gender inequality studies that you have been doing, and it was fascinating. And I remember everyone at our table, specifically uh, our alumni uh, from industry, they were really keen to hear more about that because it applied to women and, as you mentioned, to men and the broader society. That's but right. let's go step by step, right? So abuse at workplace. You mentioned, if I understood, I got it correctly, that there are some factors that actually might contribute to abuse at work, specifically for minority groups which is basically the topic of, of this podcast. Can you please elaborate on that? What are those factors and how do they contribute to abuse at work? Yeah, thanks for that. I mean, it is it's interesting because I would say power imbalances within organizations is one of the key drivers of workplace abuse, and they manifest in different ways. Um, if you look at it from a social dimensions point of view, we'd see how there are different social groups in the world and they are afforded different status or appreciation or value in society. So if you're a member of a minority group, if you are a migrant person, or if you're a member of the LGBT, LGBTQI plus community, um, you know, if you're a refugee or asylum seeker, um, all of those social categories, whether we like it or not, they are often afforded less um, status. Um, and less human value in, in society. And the implication of that is that when you go into a workplace, that means that, that the value replicates inside organizations. And sometimes it could manifest either directly because I just literally treat you like you're less deserving of opportunities, resources, or my respect. 
Um, or it could manifest as a form of backlash. So basically, when you try to speak up or when you try to progress in your career and then people use abuse as a way to put you back into the box where you belong. And so that's the, if you like, the social aspects of it, right? And then there, it could become more structural when you look at the fact that there are many of these members of these social groups, that these minority groups, are also less likely to be represented in positions of power within organizations. So again, that means that as a member of this group, you are less likely or less able to push back when you are a target of abuse because you literally yeah. have less structural power. Yeah. Um, and so abusers typically are looking for, they don't want people to push back. You know, if you're going to abuse people, you want to make sure that you're going to be able to get away with it. Mm. And so you look for people who are socially or structurally more vulnerable because they have less capacity to push back. It's very cruel and brutal, right? And it's it's just such a fascinating perspective because you if you are within a minority group, already subconsciously or consciously, you're looked down upon. But also you do not have many people on the high levels of organization that would understand your situation because as you mentioned, they often do not suffer from being that minority group, and that makes things worse. And so, I have a lot of questions. My first question is that, from an outsider perspective, who is listen- who might be listening to this podcast right now, from a person in our university or a person from industry, we might think that. This is a topic not for Australia because Australia is really a developed economy. Uh, we have got that culture. We have got LGBTQI plus support at least, or um, we have got diversity inclusion initiatives in our university, in our company. Does it still happen in various industries in Australia? Do you have any insights in how bad is it if it happens? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. There are, there are two elements that I would like to talk about there. Um, one of them is the people who might not be the target of these forms of abuse, right? And how we basically were more likely to empathize with people who belong to the same groups we belong to, okay? That's being well studied. Yep. And the implication of that is that then it is harder for you to understand what it is like when somebody else is being the target of this. So you could imagine how that structural inequality with powerful people not belonging to minority groups makes it harder for them to actually act upon these sort of issues because they don't see it. And if they see it, they might even be normalizing it. Yeah. So that's one element of, of the issue that we're dealing with. The, the thing that has to do with the question that you asked, which is about the prevalence of these events, well, the evidence is very clear. So when you look at the, the Australian Human Rights Commission, uh, when you look at the at the Victorian Human Rights Commission and the kind of uh, reports that they have prepared about discrimination and abuse um, in general, but also across our, along demographic lines, the evidence indicates that these events are quite prevalent. Okay, and so when you look at the the well sexual harassment, you know, yeah. so 
in any given year around one-fifth of the population will be target of this form of abuse, right? And of course, we have a range of behaviors that we're talking about here. So we're talking about from gender harassment, which is low intensity, high frequency, um, sexist and sexually charged comments that people might make at work, um, all the way to um, unwanted sexual attention, including sexual assault or quid pro quo. So all of those events they are more prevalent than we think And it includes both men and women. That's right. So obviously we know that around 75% of these incidents are actually targeting women. So women are significantly more likely to be the targets of this form of abuse because of the same reasons that I gave earlier. So if you are a minority group in a specific community or organization or if people actually afford you less status and, and respect then you are more likely to be targeted with this form of abuse. So it is, it is more common. And interesting enough, it is it is what I would call an asymmetric, asymmetrical process. So women are more likely to be targeted. Men are significantly uh, you know, more likely to be the instigators of this form of abuse towards both men and women. Okay, So men, as a man, are significantly more likely to be uh, sexually harassed by other men. And the, 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 is, the, what changes is the way in which men sexually harass other men versus women, right? So if you're going to sexually harass me, what would normally happen is that you are going to be challenging my masculinity, okay? So you're going to be making jokes about whether I'm a, a man enough or about how much, how involved I am with my family life, you know, and the fact that I'm under control of some, you know, domineering partner and so on. So it's, it's different the way I'm being harassed, but... You know, it's possible for men to be sexually harassed too. I mean, fascinating. And are there any industries that these types of, for example, sexual abuses or sexual harassments more prevalent compared to other industries, or is it the same ratio across all industries? Yeah, it's a great question. We have identified variability across countries, across um, industries in the prevalence of sexual harassment, okay? Um, across countries, what we see is that different societies have different social norms about what behavior is tolerable and how likely they are to identify that something is sexual harassment and call it that way and push back, okay? So basically, the social norms of the community are important to figure out what's abuse and then to decide to act upon it. And then at the organizational level, we have also identified that there are differences um, in the kind of harassment that people experience and also in the prevalence of the harassment. So, for instance, we know that being in an industry that is dominated by a specific gender increases the likelihood that you're going to be sexually harassed. So, for instance, in female-dominated work environments, if you're a man working in that context, you are more likely to have people challenging your masculinity. Oh, wow. By, by women? or By women and by wow. other men. Yeah, so which called, we call yeah. it gender policing. So people start questioning, you know, what you do, the kind of hobbies that you have, and the fact that you are there. So why are you there? You mm. don't belong there. What right? is an example of a, a, a female-dominated industry? Uh, well, it, it's interesting, right? Because we could talk about power versus numbers. So numerically, n uh, nursing, mm. you know, and primary, primary school and, and early childhood education are contexts that numerically dominated by women, Typically, also in terms of power, so there are more, you know, women nurses who are like senior in these roles, right? Even though we know that in, in primary schools, men are also, relative to their representation in the industry, they're also quite likely to become principals, even though there are not that many of them, 
they are likely to end up in those positions of power. So when you talk about female-dominated industries, you need to be careful because there are numbers and then there is power to define domination of an environment. Um, so yeah, that happens, right, to men who work in those places. And of course, well-reported, typically better understood. On the other side, when we have male-dominated work environments, um, you know, defense or armed forces, um, fair respondents, um, well, construction, construction, um, uh, finance, particularly institutional, you know, like banking. Um, in all of those environments, right, these situations could unfold. And again, like the most common form of abuse is the sexist undermining of women. Again, so do you really belong here? Like, is your you know, people making comments about whether you have what it takes to be in that environment because you are an atypical object there. Yeah, and then if you are a person who is really keen on their job and they want to prove themselves and, you know, I have a friend actually that works in the construction industry. Um, she was telling me that because it's such a male-dominated industry specifically when you are working on site as a civil engineer which she is she said the typical rules sometimes of of the harassment and how you react to those just go out the door because if you the famous a really interesting actually statement that she made one day was that if you really want to raise everything that you experience you have to be living at the HR office Right. Yeah. And it's impossible to win, basically. I would say that's the key issue here, that um, if you don't call it out, you normalize it, and then people carry exactly. on doing it all the time, whether that gets to you or not, they will carry on doing it. If you call it out, then you are an outsider and you're acting like an outsider, effectively proving their point, because the whole point of this is to make you feel like you don't really belong here and then you should exactly. leave, right? And so there, it, like, and that's why at an individual level and when people ask me, what should I do? I always tell them, I have, have literally no solutions for you as an individual because nothing that I tell you will actually, as an individual, protect you mm. from these situations, okay? Um, what I could tell you is to form a coalition, literally to, to look for supporting numbers. That's the only thing that I'm willing to tell somebody who asked me for individually how I should deal with this. And these are problems that are organizational and social problems. And that's at the level at which they should be addressed. Because as you just said, that person that you're describing has no way to win in this no. context. We know that in hospitality, for instance, which are situations in which there is a lot of job precarity, so casual employment, insecure, you don't know whether you're going to get a new chief or not. Yeah. Also situations where you are supposed to be pleasing the client. You know, the client is supposed to always be right. And they are literally giving you direct instructions about what you're supposed to do. Okay. And if you're in a situation where you're also relying on tips to be able to make up your your full income. So all of those situations actually put you in a very precarious situation. And as the research shows that in those environments, sexual harassment is more likely to take place. And so you need to think about literally how, how we could create secure employment as a mechanism to reduce workplace abuse. So it's not an individual level or an interpersonal problem only. Yeah. It requires a, a more... I don't know, structural way of looking at it. Absolutely. We are doing a study in um, construction industry on modern slavery. And what we have found, and uh, I don't know 
<laughs> how mind blowing that is probably not uh, uh, is that migrant workers and workers overall that are not considered at, as skilled workers, workers that can be replaced are the most prone to these types of abuses, uh, at least sexual harassments or abuses. And um, especially considering your visa situation in Australia, for example, and the fact that um, one thing that, for example, that has been happening recently in Australia is that, um, as far as I know, the, there were no restrictions in how many hours students could work during COVID. And now the restrictions are back, which means that students who really need money for their studies um, need to work for cash in hand. And employers know that. And if you're a good employer, yeah, good, yeah, the wages are fair, blah, blah, blah. But if you're an employer who looks at this situation as an opportunity, then that worker might be exposed to a lot of abuses, not to mention uh, the wages that you're getting probably are below the normal wages that the worker gets, all because of that visa and work permit situation that students have. And as you mentioned, some of these would, would call for some policy-making changes, um, especially when the awareness is raised, hopefully, that these situations are happening. But speaking of abuse, I would I would assume that um, well, gender-related abuses are one thing, but we have got different types of abuses, right? Mental abuses, for example, or even physical, not sexually necessarily, abuses. And then we have got different minority groups. Uh, as you know, we have got, for example, senior people. We have got disability groups. We have got LGBTQI group. We have neurodiverse groups. So. Um, what does overall the research or your research, if you have done anything on, on that part, say about the most prevalent or the, the most under the radar abuses for different minority groups? Yeah. So, I mean, what I would say first about that is that um, when you think about abuse in terms of psychological, physical or sexual abuse, right, which are entirely arbitrary categories because a lot of the time they overlap, right? And, and abuse is like a process, like a range of things, sometimes escalating, sometimes spiraling or not. Um, we know that particularly forms of abuse that are overt, a lot of people understand that they are unlawful behavior. So like physical abuse or um, unwanted sexual attention or sexual coercion, that's why they're also less prevalent, right? Because people understand that. You're not supposed to do them. And so in organizations, there is a lot of psychological abuse. like in, From incivilities, this sort of like, again, low intensity, high frequency, undermining of the individual. Um, again, a lot of abuse from people who are more powerful within the organization towards less powerful people. That's the most common dynamic that we observe. Um, also abuse... Uh, across people who are competing for same resources and opportunities. So people using that psychological undermining as a tool to get you out of the way when you're competing for important things. And what there is a choice, at least, I mean, in Australia, we've seen it globally, is that if you are a member of the, of the queer community or if you're a person with disability or if you're an, an, an elder worker, all of those things, unless you have other form of power with you, will put you at higher risk of experiencing abuse, right? So older workers who have a lot of power within organizations are less likely to experience abuse, okay? Because they have the, the chill of their position, for instance, right? Um, but if you're not in a position of power, then that 
my exposure to ageism. Okay, and again, like people making condescending comments about you and how well you do uh, at work. So that's a very common experience that older workers uh, report. Okay, and there have been specific social events that are ex have exacerbated the abuse that people experience at work. So during the marriage equality plebiscite, and what we saw there was an increase in in the abuse towards members of the queer community. Um, and again, so people would say, well, we're just having a respectful conversation. But the respectful conversation that we were having was whether you were human enough for us to give you the same civil rights that everybody else had. Exactly. Right? My problem <laughs> with that whole um, situation was that this is a basic human right. Why should we do a referendum on it? Just give it to people already. Yeah. So, right? But the, the conversation was, so do we consider you to be an equal? Here, right? Exactly. Because um, oh. remember, we're, people were not asking for for religious marriage, right? So we're asking to have the the exact same civil rights as everybody else. Um, so there are conversations that happening in society could actually permeate what's happening in organizations, okay? And people could be exposed to form of abuse, and because everybody was told that they were entitled to an opinion, then that exacerbated the expression of negative opinions about uh, LGBTQI plus people. And again, we'll see what the data shows, but this is one of the fears that we have with the current um, vote on the recognition of indigenous people in the constitution and the voice to parliament, because the fear is that it's going to repeat exactly what happened um, during the marriage equality plebiscite, which is that everybody's being invited to have their opinion and that in any context is great. But if you don't put some clear parameters about how is it that we're supposed to have this conversation, it's quite possible that people will engage in some very negative way of talking about uh, a, a group who's being historically oppressed and abused. Um, it gets by, worse, right? Yeah. And from, from the experience, as you mentioned, with the referendum on, on marriage equality, one could tell, and especially right now, I can see the polarization between labor and liberal parties on one one party obviously supporting that, that the other party is saying, no, there shouldn't be any special treatment, and that causes controversies in society, and it might, and I'm pretty sure, as you mentioned, is backlashing on the indigenous absolutely. communities yeah. so which is which is absolutely a sad thing to see happening all because of i don't know political brownie points yeah. um, i think i mean that probably makes um, a clear distinction between the marriage equality plebiscite and what's happening right now because with the plebiscite there were people from both political parties supporting the yes vote for the recognition of of equal marriage Whereas here, when it falls along political lines, it is very easy for the topic to become extremely politicized and to become polarized. Um, and that makes it harder for the minority group who's trying to get some kind of recognition in this situation. Absolutely. And speaking of which, so what shall be done? Because I could assume that many of the minority groups that are subject to any sort of physical, sexual, mental abuse might not voice out what's happening to them. That's one issue. Um, another issue is that you mentioned interventions is part of your studies. Are interventions specifically um, targeted as people who are subject to abuse and people who might subconsciously 
or consciously do abuse. Are they going to be effective? Have they have they been effective? What kind of interventions or what what are some solutions to to tackle this to some extent? Mm, no, it's a great question. Um, this is something that I tell my students when I teach managing diversity, and which is sometimes good diversity management is just good management. Okay, so there are some issues of how we organize employment at the moment that are making it more likely for people to experience abuse, okay? So, precarious employment, for instance, which you, we just mentioned. Um, a lot of power disparity in the way that we organize institutions and situations where people are not given mechanisms to voice concern and for those concerns to be heard and addressed. So, for instance, if you don't have an independent body within your organization who is well-funded and that is truly independent and that is able to fully investigate um, any kind of allegation of abuse, um, if you don't have a policy that clearly articulate uh, what do we mean by abuse? You know, what kind of behaviors is it that we do not consider appropriate for them to happen within a specific institution? And that also articulates, um, depending on the kind of behaviors that you display, you know, the kind of abuse that you uh, instigate, what the consequences could be, okay? So lack of that clarity on what we mean by abuse here and what's going to happen, um, lack of clarity around what are the different ways in which I could deal with an instance of abuse. So for instance, you could you could have a situation where there is clearly outlined on a website or somewhere in the organization, um, if you've been the target of abuse, you could talk to somebody to organize your, your thoughts about this incident, okay? Or you could make a formal complaint and this is what's going to happen if you do. Or depending on the form of abuse, if it is a criminal behavior, so this is what the obligations of the institution are because sometimes you have to report that to the police if you know, okay? Um, and so having that there actually makes it easier for you as a, as a target of abuse to speak up, but also... If you're an abuser and you're working in an organization where the policies are super clear, where we have spelled out what's inappropriate behavior, where we have spelled out the consequences of this behavior, and what is it that somebody who's been the target of abuse could do to deal with this, you will think twice before engaging in abusive behavior. Okay, And so this sounds like kind of boring, but you need to have some good policies that are backed up by infrastructure to manage the incidence of abuse if you want to prevent the abuse. This is not just about managing the incident. It's a good way of preventing the abuse from happening in the first place. So I would say that is crucial to me. Again, dealing with precarious employment in all areas is crucial to prevent abuse. Um, managing power disparities, okay? Um, you could design literally empowering teams to solve problems you know, on their own. Uh, empowering people to speak up, um, having clear mechanisms for people to raise any kind of issue to more senior people about what's going on. Um, this is something that we're seeing in, in Australia. They're having a couple of reviews of institutions, such as the police or uh, first respondents. Or, and what we have seen in many of these cases is that the boards of directors didn't know that the instances of abuse were taking place. And many senior managers didn't know either. So clearly there was a... a, a at some point, the communication broke between, you know, every day, all the other employees and those who have power to deal with the issues, right? 
Um, so all of these are reasonably effective way of dealing with abuse. And of course, as I said earlier, abuse is a tool. So there are instrumental beliefs about abuse. So if you're working in the public sector, they sometimes could be quite bureaucratic. And if it is hard for you to fire an employee who is not performing well, you might think that bullying this person is an effective mechanism to get rid of them from the organization, right? Because they will end up quitting. And so people could have a range of thoughts or ideas about what abuse um, could be used for, okay? In sport, we see it. coaches who think that if you gel at, a, at an athlete or if you may then do exercise to the point of, of you know, that they could injure themselves, that those are effective to, to train people. So it is super important to address the sort of ideas that people have about how effective abuse is as a tool to uh, solve problems in organizations, because that's literally what they are doing. They are in their heads. Abuse is an effective tool justifying to solve problems. Justifying it. Mm -hmm. They're justifying it mm -hmm. through, through, yeah, this person doesn't quit, not a good person, so let me just exert some abuse mechanism so that they quit, right? And then you do not feel bad about yourself. You might be actually a really um, good ethical person in your head and you, you use that mechanism to justify it in your head that, yeah, I mean, we, we want to get rid of this bad apple and that's where the abuse happens as well. Exactly right. And if you work within an institution where this is the most common way of dealing with that problem, which is what's happening in all of these areas, right? So you're learning by observing how other people have solved the same problem in the past. And if they have been effective in the way that the problem disappeared, then you just learn, right? That That's the way to do it. Um, so yeah, there, there, there is that, right? And of course, there is the social tolerance. So some of the elements that you just described are part of that. The social tolerance, which is the idea that abuse is a tool and is effective. But then uh, the ideas about what should I do if I see abuse happening? Exactly. Should I pretend that this has nothing to do with me because I'm not the target or this is not acceptable and I should intervene? And even if I have in my head that I should intervene, do I have the skills? Do I actually have the interpersonal skills required to call out inappropriate behavior um, without the situation escalating further, for instance? Okay, And a lot of people who are able to recognize that a situation is inappropriate um, don't feel efficacious enough to actually go and intervene. And so an intervention that we've been trialing and that is has proven to be effective in, in experimental research, right? Um, is bystander intervention. So literally teaching somebody who is not the target of abuse how to identify whether it's taking place or not and then how to intervene to call out inappropriate behavior or to provide support to the person who's being the target of the abuse. Um, and so, again, this is a fairly effective way of dealing with this sort of situation once the abuse has, is taking place, okay? Doesn't necessarily help you prevent it but it definitely helps you deal with it once it takes place. Let's call these bystanders organizational superheroes. Do we have such a mechanism or should we have? I, I know that we have HR in organizations, but HR is also a dependent entity to, to the organization. Uh, but for example, for these bystanders and the impact of them in raising awareness when abuse happens and providing support to the the person who has been abused, 
how how do we do that? How do we achieve that in organizations? Yeah. So we again, right? Both in my industry work and here at the university, we've been, you know, thinking about how you go about rolling out a program of that kind. And the first thing that became clear is that you need to start at the top of the organization. Okay. So if you're going to roll out a training program to deal with this sort of behavior, but then you do it with junior people first, what you might be doing is sending them back to a, a team or a school or department where the instigator of the abuse is the most senior person in the room, which will actually put them at risk of further abuse and so on, right? So both in industry and here at the university, the approach has been we need to make sure that the most senior people in every department and faculty and then the professors and then the associate professors and literally a top-down rollout of these interventions, that they understand what are the new policies of the university, because we have new policies around sexual harassment, which is fantastic, well, two years old now, um, and what they do, you know, how is it that you're supposed to operate within the framework of the policies, and then what is expected of you as a leader. So the fact that it is part of your responsibility as a leader within this institution to prevent and to manage instances of workplace abuse. It's not, you know what I mean? You cannot pretend that that has nothing to do with you. It's squarely part of your job, okay? That it always was, but now they have a, a recent reminder because everybody had to go through this training program, okay? And then once you have an understanding of the policy, how you're supposed to behave, and then having training where you literally practice how to intervene where abuse is taking place. Again, and again, to do both things, to support the target, but also to call out, to explain to somebody why their behavior was inappropriate, what kind of standard of behavior you expect to see from them into the future, and then an explanation about what kind of consequences should follow that behavior, if, if any, right? Because sometimes, again, if somebody makes a silly comment or a joke, calling it out immediately, explaining why it was problematic and explaining what you expect to see in the future is the most effective way of dealing with it, okay? Probably it's not the kind of thing that people should lose their job, you know, for doing, right? If it is repeated, that's a different situation, okay? If it is a once-off, deal with it on the spot, okay? And then we all could move on, but don't let it slide like it didn't matter because it does matter, okay? Um, and, you know, I could go into a rant about why it matters, among many other things, because there's research showing that when you allow for this sort of low-intensity, high-frequency high abuse to happen... Piles up. It, exactly right. It, it, it piles up because it becomes an everyday hassle for people, but it also makes it more likely for more intense form of abuse to take place. Mm. Okay? So it could escalate into other forms of abuse. Um, so the point is, start at the top clarifying what's expected of leaders, clarifying what is abuse, clarifying the infrastructure that you have put in place to deal with this sort of issue, and then training people on how to respond when these incidents um, actually take place. Mm. I think at university, as you mentioned, we have made great progress with respect to uh, specifically sexual harassment and uh, sexual abuses, but other types of mental abuses or I don't think we have much physical abuse, at least in our sector. Um, but mental abuse is something that I would say that goes under the radar. It cannot is not visible. And it has got so many different forms, passive aggression, bullying, you name it. We ha I'm not saying we have it, but it can happen. Oh, yes. And if you are... I don't know if you are um, 
experience in exerting these types of behaviors. And it can go brilliantly under the radar. It will be even harder to pick it up. Absolutely. So I feel that academics have a... You develop a, a very intellectualized, you know, highbrow way of abusing other people, right? And some people think of this as a as a masterful sort of skill, yeah. as opposed to think about it as a shameful thing. So, if you are part of a university, you should be here to develop people. That's the job, okay? So, the job is to produce knowledge. Obviously, but there is a strong component of what we do here, which is to develop people. So having colleagues who assume that the job is to be a gatekeeper, for instance, or to use this psychological undermining as a way to build your resilience because you need to be tough so that you are ready for the job market, for instance, right? Um, and you, you could see it, right? You could see in seminars uh, where people don't even let you finish your presentation and they start asking you questions in, in a very aggressive way yeah. because that's supposed to be part of your training to be able to keep your cool. That's an um, excuse, right? It is an excuse. You, you should have a thick skin in <laughs> academia and let us destroy you a bit. <laughs> yeah. Which is, yeah. yeah. And again, like it, you're wasting time, okay? Because there are so many substantive questions that should be asked where you really drill into the you know the conceptual elements of the research or the methods or how why are you making interpretations in that way so you're literally wasting time dealing with the emotional elements of this that were introduced because of the abusive way of providing feedback or asking the question and all of that energy could be spent dealing with the substantive nature of what we're here to do yeah it's a, it's a tough one to navigate right i think probably many of us have been subject to that kind of behavior in our workplace. And um, it is really tough to point it out. Firstly, I would say with respect to psychological abuse, there needs to be substantial training of what are the different forms of it. And we have got some training at university level, um, which is good to just as a start. But I would say there are lots and lots of training and skills and practice is needed to to understand that and not necessarily i mean definitely for the workplace behavior and attitude and and understanding if you are a subject of a toxic behavior at workplace what is it and then as you mentioned is equally also important how do you face that how do you challenge that type of behavior so um how do you call it out specifically if there is power imbalance, right? Uh, for example, I'm a senior lecturer. If a professor uh, in my field is doing something that is toxic or is showing, by the way, disclaimer, this is hypothetical, uh, if you are, a, if, if not you, if they are a bully um, and you know that there is power imbalance, you know the professor is very well connected in the field, you know they can make, life really hard for you if you are on their bad side how would you try to navigate through that what would you do it's extremely hard um i would say i've been lucky though because i've been on the receiving end of that sort of behavior here and i just went and told the head of the department you know we just went and said that this happened 
you know, it happened last night, it happened this way. Um, this wasn't good enough. It wasn't good enough. And thankfully, the head of the department was like, yep, it was not good enough, and we're going to deal with this. Um, That's amazing. And it was dealt with quite, I mean, I was very pleased. And, yeah. And again, like, nobody lost their job. The person came and apologized and said, it's sorry, you know, yeah, we shouldn't have done this. And, like, yeah, wow. that was not, uh, you know, the right thing to do. So it was really, uh, yeah, I was pleasantly surprised that there was a clear understanding of why the behavior was problematic as there was ex after it was explained. And then the person came and apologized, you know. And I'm not saying that this is going to happen in all instances, but... Um, that's that has been my experience and i'm very glad that it was like that you know i'm i'm so happy that um it was resolved that way but also i think that your case might be an outlier yeah quite, you know quite possibly right based on what we see in research um yes it's not the, necessarily the most common situation but it's also the case that um what we're learning you know we the world, Australia, is not where we were five years ago or ten years ago, thankfully. There have been a number of things that have pushed us to do better, um, you know, from the Me Too movement all the way to what happened in Parliament House in Australia a few years ago and the fact that now we know about it. Um, that has forced all of us to have conversations that we wouldn't have had otherwise. Um, so I'm, I'm, you know, I would say one of the key things that also drove us to review our own sexual harassment policy was basically being in this context, right, where we are right now, where we realize that, well, this was never good enough, and and now there will be consequences if we don't act on it. Which is always good. Which is always good. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. So I mean, I, I would say it's horrible that so many people had to go through so much pain. Um, not only experiencing those behaviors, but then having to disclose it and to be re-victimized, you know, and to be re-traumatized by having to recall and, and explain all of that to us. Um, but they have done a great service to, to the world and to the country by doing that, you know. Absolutely, and good on them. I think it is the people who who resist and stand for themselves um, in spite of any adversity, that they might experience. Um, those people are the ones that that change the course of those types of behaviors for the for the better. And speaking of Australia, a few years back and the progress that we have made since then. How and I ask this from all the guests in the podcast. How do you think the future looks like? Well, um, I would say the future is. I'm, I'm, it's interesting when I think about the past and the future and how people sometimes is nostalgic about the past, right? And I'm never nostalgic about the past because in my life, in my personal life, every year has been better than the previous one. You know, like, yeah. I, you know, I grew up in a slum in Caracas, right? <laughs> um, you know, to a single mom and I'm able to make it all the way here. So Brilliant. clearly I'm not, I have no nostalgia for poverty, right? Um, so I, I think the future is going to be better. It could definitely be better than, than where we are at. Um, I also see see it in my own research, see it in my industry work. Um, I also see a lot of backlash in the future, okay? So progress will also lead to backlash. It's not whether it's going to happen or not. It's 
how it's going to happen, when it's going to happen, who is going to instigate it. So those are the questions that we need to be asking ourselves. So if you care about diversity and inclusion, if you care about making the world a better place for everybody, you need to be prepared to identify the backlash and to reduce the likelihood that it happens, but also to counter it when it's taking place. So, you know, I'm optimistic, but I'm also very clear that there will be a lot of pushback with anything that we try to do to make the world a better place. And we will need a lot of heroes in the field. Victor, I have a feeling we need at least one more session with you, specifically to cover the gender inequality part. Um, it was a fascinating talk. Thank you so much. Are we done? Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> Thank you so much and talk to you again soon. I hope so. Thank you for listening and please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast series. Please also reach out, let us know what you think and whether you'd like to contribute to Plus One podcast series.